Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 20th, 2015. This is episode 1560 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday. That means we're going to do a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails with comments, suggestions, uh, questions, uh, news stories, you name it. You send that email to jack at com, and you put TSPC in the subject line and then anything else you want. TSPC is my new thing in the subject line. I've never got a spam with TSPC, and that means I can immediately filter the stuff that ends up in the spam box, find your emails, and answer them, whether it's for a show like this or just a general email, customer service, whatever. Best thing, always TSPC, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie, in the subject line, and that'll make sure that I see your email. Know this, there is not a secret Jack email. There's not a super secret squirrel email. There is not somebody that, 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 that goes through my email and filters them. All my email comes to me. I do not answer every single email. I cannot. I generally at least look at every email that I get, and I generally do that every single day. It's the best that I can do. I do feel bad that I don't have the level of responsiveness with people that I did, you know, eight years ago when I started the show. But it's a volume issue. Please keep your emails coming. Many times if I don't put them on the air, you may not even realize that it's influenced something that I'll say. And you may also not even realize if you don't follow me on social media that I've put it out on Twitter and Facebook and things like that. Anyway, before I get to your feedback today, let's go ahead and take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. Hey, guess what the plan for your money is? To make it worth less than it is today, tomorrow. Inflation is a hidden tax on the American people's wealth. That's what it is. Period. End of story. And even Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the, the Federal Reserve, admitted that on, on, the, on the House floor when being grilled by Dr. Ron Paul, a former congressman, and, and said, yes, it, 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 effectively it's a hidden tax. I'll tell you how it works. You put $100,000 under your mattress where it's safe and secure and no one can get to it and no one even knows about it. So the government can't even tax you on it. Watch them tax you on it. 4% inflation, $4,000 of the value of your money is gone that year. You just paid a 4% property tax on your money. That's how inflation works. Does that mean get rid of all your cash? No, but it does mean some assurance of your wealth with gold and silver making up 10, uh, 5 to 10% of your, your net wealth. That's what I believe. And if you want to get more, fine. If you want to get less, fine. But put some of it away. If nothing else, start buying silver rounds and silver dollars and what have you for those nieces and nephews and kiddos out there instead of all this plastic crap that's going to be gone in a year or two. And the place I get my gold and silver is jam bullion. If you give them a chance to win your business one time, you'll see why. $100 minimum order, but if you're buying gold and silver online, dude, don't buy less than $100. Bucks. The shipping will eat you alive. And with jam bullion, better pricing than Monix and Atmex, and guess what? No cost at all for shipping. All orders ship free from jmbullion.com. MSB members. Orders of $300 or more, you get discounts on. Check the benefits section of your MSB. Best silver and gold dealer I've ever worked with, ever. And I've been buying gold and silver in earnest since 1993. I wish I would have found Jam Bullion sooner. It might have saved me a lot of misery over the years. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. 
Look, I, I always say this. When it comes to conventional medicine, there are certain things that if they're wrong with me or I'm injured, I, I want to go see a, a, an MD as, as quickly as possible. But, like, I woke up this morning and my back is sore. My hips are sore. I've been planting uh, grapevines like crazy this last two days and shoveling this really wet, heavy soil mix that I purchased because then it poured rain on top of it. And now it's like mud getting that out of the back of the truck. And I'm just tired and achy. So I, I took some turmeric. And then I went out and we just got done moving the ducks and hopefully we'll have a Duck Chronicles for you this week and all. But, you know, I went out and, and kind of moved around and I feel great now. If you can't tell by my voice, I feel outstanding right now. And I haven't done anything to damage my liver or my kidneys. I didn't go to the doctor. I didn't, and I'll tell you what, I, it's not for everyone to take that self-approach. But for those of us that want to, herbs are where a lot of us turn first. And even those of you that are working very closely with an MD, find an MD that's open to these alternatives. Because they are very beneficial, in my opinion. And when I need something, I go to Western Botanicals. And when I'm, I'm not sure where to find it on their site or whatever, I, I call them up and I say, I'm looking for this. And they go, oh, yeah, we have that. Here it is. Or we don't have that particular thing individually in stock right now. But here's a formulation that includes that and some other things. There are real people that really care about you. And, gee, they answer the phone in the United States. And if, you're not, if you need some help, they'll get somebody back in touch with you. They are a great, great company to deal with. And they give away their premium membership, which is 50 bucks a year for free if you're a member of my support brigade. And that gives you 25% off everything that they have. So check them out today. They're a great sponsor. They've been with us a long time, and they have great products. Next up today, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1560. I have the Tulip Arrives in the Netherlands, inviting the invaders and the pirates of the Caribbean. It's not a Disney ride. I really want to read that last one because it's cool. It's Pirates of the Caribbean who, or Caribbean. Which one is it? It's whichever one you want it to be. Anyway, I still I have to read The Tulip Arrives in the Netherlands because it leads to something many of you have heard of. And I have some unique comments about how people get burned in business and investing off of this that we can learn from today. So that's the reason I'm going with The Tulip. Persians have been cultivating The Tulip since the 10th century. After the conquest of Constantinople, tulips were introduced to the city And the Turks wear them in their turbans. The ambassador from the Holy Roman Emperor to Constantinople sends a few of these magnificent flowers back to Vienna. He names the flower Tulip because he mistakes the Persian name for turban as the name of the flower. Tulip sounds good to him, and the flowers look like small turbans, so the name sticks. This year, the tulip arrives in Holland for the first time and will eventually reach Britain in 1578. My take by Alex Shrug. I used to think the tulips came from Holland. Holland came into the picture in the 1600s when certain varieties of tulips from Holland became so scarce they created a craze called tulip mania. This was similar to collecting Beanie Babies or Tickle Me Elmo dolls, except that some folks would sell their house to buy a single tulip bulb. By 1637, tulip bulbs became an investment. But it was crazy, like a race car driver invested in a salad dressing company and expecting to make millions. Actually, Paul Newman's company has made $400 million to date with Newman's own on an investment of $40,000. And the motto, fine food since February. <laughs> But in, like an investment in tulips, markets can be fickle. When the market for tulip bulbs fell, people holding the bag of bulbs lost everything. Tulip mania remains one of the most significant economic bubbles in history. Let me go over with you kind of how this happened. Not the whole lead up to it. Just understand, people were buying this stuff. They didn't want a flower. They didn't want a bulb. They weren't even buying them to propagate them. They were buying 
holding and the market was rising so fast, as long as you bought, you could sell. And you could make a lot of money trading, like day trading stocks. Okay? And a lot of money. A lot, like a ton of money. Especially if you were the first out of the gate to get a new variety that came in, which could be counterfeited pretty easily because you wouldn't know if it was really what it said it was until it grew. Okay? Just saying. We didn't have DNA testing to go along with this or anything like that. So all this speculation. And like kids in orphanages were, were raising money and buying a few tulips and getting themselves out of poverty. This is a good thing. What could go wrong? Well, see, there was no real underlying value to these tulips beyond, hey, they're pretty flowers. And a flower bulb is able to be propagated, and tulips are one of the easiest plants to propagate because they propagate through a process known as division. So you plant some, and then you can just basically dig them up and take more and more off them, keep making more and more and more and more. So sooner or later, the supply, no matter how crazy the demand, will meet the demand. In normal economic situations where people are buying the product for the purpose of the product intends, in other words, this is being used to plant pretty flowers in your front yard, like they use them for today. This is great. This is what's called market equilibrium. And at that point, the supply side will always adjust to the demand side, and there'll be a fair market value of the product. This law is broken when the demand side is being driven by speculation versus the underlying commodity value. And sooner or later, when equilibrium's reached, all we need is one day of excess of supply to pop the bubble. And that's what happened with the tulip mania. One day, a lot of 12 tulip bulbs went up for auction. They didn't just sell for less... They didn't sell at all. No one bought them. And it was a literal cascade into oblivion. You couldn't give them away at any price after that happened and the word got out. It's over. Now here's the thing. People say, well, then the smart thing would have been to have sold a couple days before that. If you are happened to be really, really lucky. The smart thing, if you were going to play in that market, would have been to have exited it about six months before that happened and be working on the next commodity that's on its way up while everybody's still over there screwing around losing their money. That, that would be the best. And to have that much foresight in a market. What happens with these bubbles is when everybody starts getting in them, look for them to break. That's always when it happens. When, when the people that wouldn't touch it start throwing money at it, run away from any market that does that. This is, for instance, when silver made a meteoric rise up to over $50 not that long ago, a few years ago. There was a point I said, no more, get away from this. I mean, if, you're, if you have money, if you have silver you've bought, that's, you've had a while, you want to hold on to that's fine. But if you need money, this is the time to take it. Uh, and don't buy any. Just do not buy any more. People said, well, how did you know? When I started seeing we buy silver and gold in the windows of gas stations and laundromats, that was the indication it was about to happen. That would have been a great time to take a short position in silver. And you could have made a lot of money doing it if you wanted to play that end of the market. It's not always that transparent, but with many commodities it is. You always have to look at what's the underlying value of the commodity. Now, right now I actually think silver is undervalued, and, and I'll tell you why. Right now, an ounce of silver costs less than the cost of mining and refining an ounce of silver. It's been a long time since that's been the case. 
And that means that the existing market is using the silver that's already mined and already refined. And the miners are basically taking it on the chin right now and having to really slow production and wait for a market equilibrium moment. Or they're having to lean out their efficiency so they can mine for less. And that means as we begin to consume silver, which means it goes into the hand of collectors who don't part with it. It goes into the hand of, of stackers that don't part with it. And it goes into industry that uses it in ways where it's not recoverable. Eventually we head back to that. So I'm not saying go put all your money in silver. Never do. I'm just saying that if you've been wondering if, like, if this is a good buy moment, I believe whenever you have a commodity selling for less than it can be produced for with a track record of intrinsic value, it is a good time to buy, at least in some amount. Just saying. Anyway, with that, before I get into your feedback, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Let's say you love the Survival Podcast. You want to make sure that it's always here, it's always available to you. The best way you can help ensure that is by becoming an MSB member and getting your money back several times over by using the discounts that come with it. It's $50 a year or $5 a month. You sign up. And then you get access to the private website. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks on day one. You get discounts to a lot of great stuff. And uh, you're supporting the show. So it's a win, win, win. The people giving you discounts get business they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, the people that, that are joining the MSB get the discounts so they can support a show they love, hopefully. And they can get their money back. And I win because I earn enough money to continue to do this every day of my life and help bring these important things to you. Anyway, with that, reminding you one more time, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responder like EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, the deal's even better. I give you a service discount. Email me before you join. TSPC service discount on the subject line. Tell me about your service, one or two sentences, and I will send you the discount code. Again, before, not after you join. With that, let's get into um, today's feedback show. Um, I got an email from somebody very, very upset with me about my stance on, I don't give a damn about the presidential elections in 2016. Uh, it's pretty much already, the writing's on the wall. Things are already going to work out the way that they're going to work out. And, and you, you, you really aren't going to, uh, to, to make an influence on it. And I got one of the, the standard, what's considered, um, platinum objections, right? The, 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 the gold star objection. There's, there's one that when the people that are, are coming to terms with the fact that this is an oligarchy, and that we don't really get to decide much about federal elections at all, and certainly not the presidential election, and that both sides have candidates that are basically picked and are going to do the work of the oligarchs, and they, they're, they're in those five stages of grief, right? Um, and, and they're still in the denial stage. And they want they don't want to advance from denial. And, and maybe they've, they've bumped into anger a couple times, but they just still, there's gotta be, there's gotta be something we can do with this. This, this is, this can't be true. I've been told my whole life this matters. And they bring the silver objection, the platinum objection, the objection of all objections. But Jack, the President of the United States appoints Supreme Court justices. And many of them are getting old. And the next president could put up to five justices on the bench. This assumes a lot of things, like that he gets elected and he gets reelected. And he's there for a full eight years. And it assumes that all of these old geezers on the court that are projected to either die or to retire do. Okay? And it also means that the people that feel that the new president would put a justice on that would be counter to them don't hang on for one more election cycle. So if I have a, a justice 
that would be the type of justice who would have been appointed by a Democrat, and there's a Democrat in office, they feel very safe in their retirement. Like, they know that whoever takes their reins will be like-minded to them. And if I, conversely, with a Republican. But if I have a, a Republican president, and I have a Democrat justice, and they, they really should retire, but they're afraid of what might happen, they might just hang on a little longer and take the walker to work if they have to, because they'll wait it out and see if the American public will swing. So this assumes an awful lot to say five, but it, it could be true. And that's very much the case. If you do the math, it could be true the next president, if reelected, could appoint up to five justices. So it's very, very important that we vote, if no other reason, for this. Okay, hold on. This ignores the, the, the freaking reality of the electoral college system and the small, limited number of swing states, the overall mood of the country, and the fact that the next election is going to have the same result no matter what I say. See, what people do is they say, well, Jack, you have a lot of influence. No, I don't. Not, not, not at this level. There's about 100,000 to 120,000 people that listen to every episode of this show. Okay? And, and th 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 those people change. It's not the same hundred. Like, some people find me and go, this guy's a jerk. Some people find me and go, I like this guy's shows on, on, on Wednesdays. And, I, and the rest of it, I can take it or leave it. I, I like when Jack talks about permaculture, so I listen to that only. I like when Jack does a feedback show, so I listen to that. So the, the, the number of people is probably greater than that, but the true influence kind of sways between groups. People leave, people come in, what have you. Okay, It's not that I don't have influence and I can't do positive things, but where does that influence take place? Let's say that I said this is important, Everybody go vote and vote for the Republican because of this issue. And let's say all 120,000 people listened to me and did what I said because I said it, which I don't think so. Okay, but let's imagine they did. The odds of us swinging a presidential election by doing that with an audience, oh, wait a minute, 120,000 people, they're not all Americans, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're not all Americans. Oh, by the way, they're not all Republicans. I, a lot of them are like libertarians and anarchists, but a lot of them are Democrats. So they're not going to vote Republican because I say so. But I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll swing. I'll go to Democrats. Say, vote for Hillary Clinton. Is she going to get the nominee? Whatever. Okay. And they all went that way. See, it doesn't matter which side I would push. Even if I could push 100% of my audience, it's not going to. But check Florida. Florida's not going to be razor thin this year. That happened once, right? But Ohio, I'm telling you. This next election, I, right now, I would lay odds is going to go Republican. And, and, and those of you that think you're going to take your country back, boy, did I put a meme out on that today, by the way. Uh, you're going to be disappointed with the results you get. Okay? But I can't tell you 100% it will do that. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. The second we have the nominations pretty much firmed up. Like, it's not even done yet, but it looks like it's going to be, you know, sucker, a, it's going to be a criminal A on one side and criminal B on the other side. I'll tell you then, with certainty, because there's certain people I know, if they are the nominee, it ain't happening on both sides. So it's not so much I can tell you the winner, I can tell you the loser. And by, by telling you the loser, I know the winner. And gee, if a redneck from Texas, son of a coal miner from Pennsylvania, retransplanted Texas redneck, can figure this out. Don't you think the people with all the money that are controlling all this stuff can figure this out? So you're going to get the same five shitty court justices that you're going to get no matter what you do or who you vote for. 
I wish it wasn't true. This is not like Jack was right. Dun, dun, dun. No, this is like I hate this. I hate this because there's the truth. There isn't a person putting their toe in the water for the election right now that really is looking out for you and isn't a psychopath that isn't going to do what the people with the money that are handling them tells to do tells them to do. The the least scumbaggy person in the whole pool of anybody that could potentially be your president that we know of right now in 2016 is Rand Paul. Rand is not his dad. I wish he was. He's not. Okay? And I think he would be less bad. I think I could actually make a case in ways that Rand Paul would be less bad for the country than everybody else on both sides. I think that when you put any other two people together, I go, doesn't matter. You're going to get the same shit. You really are. Here's the thing. The people with the money know that too. This guy ain't getting in. This guy ain't getting a nomination. In fact, if you see Rand Paul nominated, look for the Republicans to lose, which it's not going to happen anyway. Here's why. Here's why I can tell you this. The right-wing radio people that should be in love with Rand Paul have been shitting on him since his announcement. The gentle shit on type thing. Like, I talked about this before. Like, you know, the guy that you, you give as a reference for a job and you think he's going to give you a good reference. And he goes, yeah, you know, Tony's pretty good. I, I'd probably hire him now. I, I don't know if I would have passed, but I, I'd probably hire him now. Well, you know, that obviously is going to create the follow-up. Well, he had some issues, but I think those are taken care of. And I, I think he's still working on a few of them. But I, I would probably hire him now. That's how right-wing radio has been crapping on Ron Paul, uh, Rand Paul. So he ain't getting in. If you can't get those guys to support you, you're not winning the right-wing side of the primaries. So no Rand. So the objection that seems so ironclad is still irrelevant. It's still moot. And your vote won't change the presidential election. Mine won't either. And if all of you did what I said, it wouldn't change it. And those of you that love the, you know, the silver star objection, you also assume that I would tell people to do what you want them to do. And it just might be that I wouldn't. It, it would really depend on who the final two idiots are that they put up. And honestly, there's times where I would take a president that I disagree with if I think they're going to be ineffective over one who I sort of kind of agree with the marketing if I think they're going to be effective because they're going to do all kinds of other shit that I don't want. So I, in many ways, I'd prefer an incompetent boob of a president that can't get shit through Congress, and they'll never work with Congress, and Congress will never work with them, so they, they stop doing shit. So I, I would take the person I think least likely to get what they want. I would also look at the congressional side of things and say, hey, if we're going to have a Democratic Congress and Senate, I'd rather have a Republican president where they're at odds, and vice versa. So you may not get what you wanted, even if I did what you said. But guys, again, the most important election in our lifetimes... Haven't we heard that story one too many times? Let's move on to something much more cool and much more useful to us than talking about politics anymore today. I'm pretty much done with it. Okay, this first one comes from Martin. Martin says, I have a question about effectively using felled lumber from mesquite trees. Some background, I've just acquired 1.5 acres of land in northwest Arizona, about two to three miles away from the Colorado River. Back one-third acre behind my property is overgrown with velvet mesquite and salt cedar, and a patch of something locals call goatweed that I can't find a match for. My overall early plan is to compass some of the trees to create small patches of shade ground to try to manage the goatweed since practically it's, it's practically a quail and rabbit magnet. 
My question is, does the mesquite wood go to better use in a woody bed so I don't bring material in, or as a grilling fuel? I'm pretty sure using salt cedar for hugel mounds is a bad idea since this poly builds up and releases large amounts of salts. So there is little local wood for the job. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good work. Martin, um, I, I'll tell you that what you really want from a hugel wood is something that rots at a moderate pace. So this is ideal, right? This isn't like it works or it doesn't work. Like you would prefer something that rots at a moderate pace for your hugel mount. So if you put something in there that's like a super soft wood that rots really, really quick, then it works, but it doesn't work for long. And if you put something in there like, oh, I don't know, something like black locust that's like 90% fungicide uh, within its walls, its cellular walls, uh, and it, it can sit in the ground for 100 years and not rot, then you really aren't going to get much of an effect at all. Um, mesquite tends toward the very slow rot. It is incredibly rot resistant. It's incredibly hard. And it is not of the level that like a black locust is. But when it comes to something for fence posts, I've seen some damn old fence posts made out of mesquite. So I'm not saying it won't work for hugel culture because the truth is almost anything will. Um, I, I don't know that I would use salt cedar, and I don't know anything about salt cedar uh, if it is true that it has the high salinity, if that's why they call it that. But I would verify that because cedar is another rot-resistant wood that supposedly doesn't work for hugel culture that I've seen people use for hugel culture and seen it work. But I, I, I don't know the particular variety you're talking about salt cedar. So that's something that you might have to do a little more research on. In the end, organic matter is good. And it may be that it's better to do something like get a, a, a good-sized chipper shredder. You need something pretty industrial horsepowered for this. So it might be better to rent like a tow-behind one with a truck like once a year and take all of the springy you know, parts of the mesquite, the smaller pieces, and make it into wood chips and use that for mulch and for maybe even hoogles. And take the bigger pieces, anything that's, you know, wrist sizing up and you, maybe even, I would say with mesquite, thumb sizing up in some cases and, and use that for, for fuel. It is an incredibly good fuel wood. It is an incredibly good cooking wood. Um, there are few things in the world that I like to cook with more than mesquite wood and smoke or cook or grill or whatever. It's awesome. Mesquite smells good before you start cooking the food. Like when I when I build like a like sometimes in my little Weber kettle grill instead of using brick charcoal or lump charcoal, I just make a little mound of mesquite chunks and I get that going and I cook right over those hot coals. And I start having my mouth water when the smell of the mesquite itself starts to permeate. It, it's it's like it's made for that. Um I also say the mesquite is something like don't shy away from picking some really nice select pieces for craft work, either for your own craft work or to sell, you know, to other people that would use it. It makes beautiful turned wood products. Um, I think there'd be a lot more like mesquite furniture and flooring and things like that if the mesquite tended to grow as a big straight tree. I think the main reason you don't see more done with mesquite has nothing to do with the quality of the wood and the look of the wood and far more to do with the structure of the tree. If you could make mesquite grow 
50 foot tall on a straight pole fast, you know, maybe not as quite as fast, but similar rapid growth as, as to like, let's say a, a, a lodgepole pine or something like that. Uh, I think you would see it become one of the dominant woods in construction and crafting and materials and, and shelving and, and all that other stuff. And I've seen some beautiful stuff done with it. It just tends to be harder to come by. It makes beautiful knife handles. It, 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 uh, cutting boards made from it. Things especially can be done with small pieces. So like cutting boards, you don't need a big piece of mesquite to make a cutting board. You can use lots of pieces put together and then planed, plain level. Uh, it just beautiful stuff. So also look at like, are there selective pieces of it that would make, you know, pistol handles or anything? Wooden spoons. I mean, stuff like that. There's a whole craft market built around Woodcraft, and there's usually people looking to get their hands on it. And yeah, you can usually buy it as a commodity. But this is what I've learned about people that do things like turning wood for pens and making like custom-made slingshots or or what have you. If they're good at what they do, and they're selling a significant volume, and they're talking to their customers directly, they like to have a story to go with their product because they know how to market. So being able to say, well, there's this guy and this is where he lives and he, I get this from him and it's on his property and it's this kind of cedar and he only sends me select pieces and I only get so much of it is very compelling to his market. So if you find those types of people, knife makers, uh, wooden tool makers, wooden bowls, things like that, you, you might find that you, you're not going to make a fortune on this, but you know, if you can pack up a box of, of select cedar and sell that for 40 or 50 bucks, it beats the hell out of burning it or burying it. And if you did that, I don't know, 10 times a year even, that's 400 bucks. 400 bucks, if you do have to bring in material for specific reasons, buys a lot of material. So you don't have to make a fortune on something to make it worth putting a little bit of monetization to it. Uh, but I would use most of it for cooking. And if somebody's done a lot of hoogling with mesquite, let me know. I'd love to know that I'm wrong on this one. I really would. I just think with its rot resistance and resistant to fungus, it's not going to work real well for you. Next one we have today is on gardening. It says I have a small garden of about 200 to 300 square feet. I do mostly corn, tomatoes, pumpkins, and other annual veggies that grow here in southwestern Pennsylvania. My question is about getting rid of paper from the home office. I hate throwing things away if they can be useful, especially in my soil. Between junk mail and paper, I have used generate maybe one to two tall kitchen waste baskets a year of nice shredded paper. Would it be of benefit to the soil to till it in at this time of the year? I have not, I do not have enough space to do much compost. I'm sitting on a tenth of an acre and I have nearly every square foot of my yard in one type of food production or another. Note I'm not concerned about the mineral amount in the ink or the toner of the paper. I know some people are. I'm not. Keep up the good work. The show makes my 70 mile commute fly by. Uh, well, that's great, Sean. I'm, I'm glad that we can be a big part of your day. Here's what I would say. Um, you can, Incorporate this in your soil. I'm not big on tilling, but I, I get why some people do it. And if you're doing it once a year and you're doing it small scale and you're tilling beds, not a field, it, it's not the horror that some people make it out to be. Um, and you could till it in and it might do okay. And I don't know that it really would. I don't know that it would hurt anything. It is adding carbon to the soil in the end, so that's probably good. Um, I would say that no matter what you're doing, you probably have room for a worm bin. And I would tell you this would be a great product to put in a worm bin because you can do it a handful every other day or so. And if you drink coffee, you throw your coffee grinds in there. And you take all your compostable vegetables and stuff since you're not composting, 
right? So I know you're not composting. So a multi-stage worm bin can be take up one square foot. And it can even be in your home. And in the winter, it might be better than it was. So you could use this as one of the many materials to feed your worms, and you'll get a very high-quality compost product and the worm juice as a fertilizer. So that would be one way to do it. Now let's say you say, you know what, Jack? That's nice. That's good and well. But I don't want to jack with another thing. I don't want a worm bin in my home. Okay, go to like Home Depot or Lowe's. Get yourself some six-inch PVC pipe. Cut these pipes at about three foot long. Sink them two feet in the ground. Drill holes in the sides, lots of holes, uh, about a quarter inch of the two feet going down in the ground. Get yourself an end cap. Put that on there. Loose-fitting end cap for it. Drill a few holes above just to keep some good air circulation going on. End cap so you don't get too wet. Put them right into your garden beds. One per bed if you want to go that far or start out with just one. Now take all of your stuff that you normally would provide in a worm bin and start putting in there and put composting worms in there. They won't leave. They'll stay in the compost. They'll do all their composting right where they're at. And everything will leach out into the soil, and every once in a while you can clean them out and spread out some of their way, their uh, their compost they've created for you. And they will go in and out of your to your soil a little bit here and there, and that won't hurt anything. And other worms will come and feed on all of the decaying matter that that kind of leaches out as well. So your earthworms will coexist with your composting worms, and life will be good. And you won't have to take up any real space because that six-inch tube sticking up out of your garden, you can have beans and shit growing right up it. It could be right in the middle of your corn. It might take the space of one plant, maybe. So, I mean, usually your corn's at least a foot apart, and usually more than that. So there's no place where this doesn't work. And that would be completely passive. It could be very, very simple. It's very easy to integrate into your life. It's going to improve the quality of your garden. It's going to make better use of this waste material. Uh, again, coffee grinds, vegetable trimmings, anything but citrus and, and alliums. No onions, no garlic. Just about anything else straight into there. And the worms will expand or contract their population on their own based on how much they're getting. And if you had like four of them, well, you got like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, you know, just keep going on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, back to the beginning and, and, and just keep going. Um, that, I would do one of those two things before I would till. And if nothing else, then go ahead and till it in. If you're mulching, I would just, you know, before you put your new mulch layer down, I would just spread that shit all out and just mulch over top of it instead of tilling it. But it doesn't sound like what you're doing. Anyway, that's that's what I would do. Let's take another one. Um, this next one is more of a news story. It comes in from David. He says, you talk a lot about the disruption of current paradigms. Here's an article from The Verge about how Tesla plans to be producing a stationary battery for powering the home in the next few months. The story suggests that Tesla's founder, Elon Musk, uh, less like a car maker and more like an architect of a vertically integrated energy company with enormous disruptive potential as a threat to the mainstream utility companies. This is on TheVerge.com. So... Uh, let me read a little of this article to you. Earlier this week, during a disappointing Tesla earnings call, Elon Musk mentioned in passing that he'd be producing a stationary battery for powering the home in the next few months. It sounded like a throwaway side project from someone who's never seen a side project he doesn't like. But it's a very smart move, and one that's central to Musk's ambitions. It's more central to Musk's ambitions than it might seem. 
To understand why, it helps to look not at Tesla, but at Solar City, a company chaired by Musk and run by his cousin Lyndon Rive. Solar City installs panels on people's roofs. It leases them for less than they'd be paying in energy bills and sells surplus energy back to the local utility. It has proven tremendously successful model. Founded in 2006, the company now has 168,000 customers and controls 39% of the rapidly expanding residential solar market. Fueled by financing systems like Solar Cities government subsidies and like Solar Cities, comma government subsidies, so two different things, and a rapid drop in price of photovoltaics, solar has been growing fast. But with that growth, some of solar's downsides are coming to the fore. Obviously, the sun isn't always shining when you need the power, and sometimes the sun is shining when you don't need the power. The former is a problem to the user who needs to draw from the grid when it's cloudy and dark. The latter is a problem for the grid, which needs to find a place for that excess energy to go. When there's a lot of solar in the system, it can get hard to keep the grid balanced. That's part of the reason that California, with one of the most aggressive renewable energy mandates in the country, recently declared the most aggressive energy storage mandate as well, with a goal of 1.3 gigawatts of storage by 2020. As other states adopt intermittent renewables like solar and wind, they'll need to install energy stores too, providing a ready and waiting market for Tesla's batteries. That This has been part of the plan for the Gigafactory all along. At any event in New York last fall announcing plans for Solar City to build a giant PV panel factory, Musk and Rive mentioned that every Solar City unit would come with a battery storage within 5 to 10 years and that the systems would supply power at lower cost than natural gas. Those batteries will come from the Gigafactory currently being built in Nevada. Once the factory comes online, the strong demand for energy storage will allow it to immediately ramp up to production and achieve economies of scale. Tesla's CTO, J.B. Strobel, has said that he might love batteries more than cars. says that the market for stationary batteries can scale much faster than automotive and that a full 30% of the Gigafactory will be dedicated to them. Indeed, Solar City has already begun installing Tesla batteries mostly on commercial buildings like Walmart stores which have to pay higher rates when they use lots of power during peak hours. Tesla's batteries let them store up solar power when they don't need it and use it when the rates are high, shaving 20-30% to off their energy bills, according to Ravi Makhani, an analyst for GTM Research. You can read the rest of this article if you want to. You get the point. You have a company that came out of the gate building high-end electric cars, electric Ferraris, let's say. Um, cars that are faster, that, that, that speed up faster, uh, that have greater torque, that are faster in a quarter mile than anything on the road. Uh, incredible cars. Cars that are stupid fast. Like, there is no reason for a car to be as fast as some of the Tesla cars are. Uh, especially on, you know, highway driving. It's great to have power, but I mean, there's a point where you've gone beyond what's necessary. Now, I'm, saying, I'm not saying anybody shouldn't have it, but I mean, we've gone beyond the needed. Um, in fact, I would say some of Tesla's vehicles, if they were pushed a little bit further, could be dangerous to the driver. Uh, not that any car can, but I mean, like, literally could cause injury without a crash. Like, like there are aircraft now that can turn at, at such rates they'd make a pilot go unconscious. So they've actually, so like the YF-22, the Raptor that, that they stopped making, actually has maneuverabilities that exceeds the pilot's capabilities physically. So I think that, that you would put, knock somebody out, but I think like you would give the driver whiplash if they were able to navigate without special equipment if you took the car much further. It, it might be able to do it now. 
Why? Because Tesla knew the electric vehicle market was hard, especially to come in not being Chevy or GM or Buick or, oh, wait, they're all the same company. Anyway, <laughs> but not being Chevy or Ford or Toyota or whatever and coming in with an all-electric vehicle, not a hybrid. So what they did is they said, well, we'll make a car that's so exclusive that the rich people will want it. They're easier to sell to than the poor people. And then we'll come down to the production level over time. Doing this, they have to make like these extremely efficient batteries. They have to be extremely small. They have to fit a car. They have to think about weight. And you look at that and go, well, if I could make these things as big as a refrigerator and just as heavy, what could we do with a den? Or even half that size? Huh. And then you say, well, we could put it in a house or a commercial building, and maybe we could put 20 of them in some commercial buildings, and that's a market. So since we're already doing this, let's do that too. Very, very smart. Now, how efficient can this stuff get? How viable can it get? I'll tell you something that, that already speaks to that, and we're just getting started. If Walmart will invest in something, it's efficient. Period. End of story. Done. Walmart are the toughest sons of bitches to deal with in sales that you will ever deal with on anything. They will beat you to the pulp on every price, on every condition, on every term. And it's almost not, if they weren't as big as they are, nobody would even deal with them. That's the only reason people will even tolerate Walmart is because they are so big and they do so much volume. So on that alone, I know that this has to work because it also has caused Walmart to do something Walmart doesn't generally do. Walmart doesn't do proprietary. Walmart doesn't do single source stuff, especially when it comes. I'm not talking about what they'll put on the shelf. I'm talking about the stuff they use for their own operations. They 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 they'll they'll make you a single source, but they'll only do that through completely beating the living shit out of you because of the knowledge that you're not really the single source. I can go get somebody else to do all this. The the systems that they're purchasing from 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 Musk's corporation are very specifically they're not completely a hundred like you could get somebody else to do your next building. But you're locking yourself into a lot of things with these systems on the service and parts level. For Walmart to do this, there has to be something significantly better about the total package than they would get from someone that was more of an off-the-shelf installer. So I, I, I think that that alone tells us that, that Tesla's headed in the right direction. It also makes them a lot more resilient than a niche automotive manufacturer. Who's got another problem I'll talk about in a second, by the way, because of, well, once again, government. But if you can sell a product that you can put in every commercial building in every home, and you can do a better job of that than everybody else, you can become a cabillionaire, <laughs> is one way to look at it. In other words, if you have you ever really thought about why Chevy and Ford and Chrysler became such huge corporations? Look at look at the road. Look at the sheer number of cars. But see, the, the auto manufacturing became a business that became difficult to enter for American companies. That's why we ended up with a big three. But the foreign manufacturers decided just to come here and make their cars in America and save money multiple ways and compete against our union-based big three very effectively. And in the end, if you want to buy a car today, 
you, you usually start out this way. I want a car that is X number of feet, size, whatever, capability, speed, mileage. Uh, I want an SUV. I want a minivan. I don't know what the hell you'd want one for, but you want one. Or I want something like an old station wagon, like a Subaru or whatever. I want something like you define the characteristics. And you'll find that you have 10 manufacturers to choose from at that point of varying prices. And there's a lot of opportunity there. If you can be the first one of those, though, you get such a head start. And I think that could be in Tesla's future with this. And who knows? Maybe this was the plan all along. Maybe the cars were the way to get everybody talking about you, pull the VC money in, et cetera, initially, and, and get you know to a point where you, you, you could be selling and trading stock and, and, and then maybe drop this on the market that might not have been ready for it back in the beginning. I don't know. But... How does this actually end up working if you're going to get it to work? The, the way that you can get this to work is to be able to deliver a Lego-like package for people. And the, you think this is hard, but it's not that hard. The modern home already has a centralized, it's modern shit, the, the average home that's had wiring in it for 50, 60 years now works this way. You have a place where the electricity comes in, a central distribution location, and then the power goes everywhere in the house from there. All we need to do is to be able to have something that can basically be wired hard into that, isolated from the grid on the storage side so that you could make the utility companies happy and convince them you're not going to kill their, their technicians. This is a valid concern, by the way, while they're working on lines where the power's down, but it isn't because you have your system backfeeding up the system. So that's, that's a legitimate concern. So, but once you've skinned that, you can end up with a system that a good contractor could come out and install in a day in the average American home. A very scalable system where your salespeople can go in and go, well, let's give it a try. Let's give it a try. And then if it works for you, we can always add more panels later. Or increase the size of your battery bank later. And then with the lease model... See, this is the other thing that started to happen with solar that people don't realize. This lease model, where the consumer sees a much faster ROI, and the corporation using creative financing is able to stave off the time necessary for their ROI, it's much more sellable. It's much more sellable. And I'll tell you why I like the lease model. If you lease me something you're ultimately responsible for what happens when it succeeded my use. And therefore, uh, as a corporation, it's much more incumbent upon you to think about the total life cycle of the product. What are you going to do with it when I am not your customer anymore? And it leads to a lot more sustainability and renewability, which is great in this market. If we're going to do this, it can't be greenwashing. It has to be real. Now, as far as the utility companies being afraid of this, I don't think so. You see, utility companies are going to make money, period. What they don't want is a truly distributed model. Well, Tesla's playing ball. That's why they're not quaking in their boots. Tesla is playing ball with the all Tesla is not your salvation. Tesla is not, you know, this, this rogue company that thumbs its nose at the rest of humanity's, you know, megacorps. And, I mean, we're talking about billionaires playing with billionaires here. If, this was designed to shut off the connection to the grid. There'd be all types of assaults going on right now to get rid of Tesla. There are some, but in a different world. The electrical companies don't fear distributed power storage. 
they just they, they fear losing centralization. So if you can start putting these things into homes, and they actually store what's being produced by the grid, and the grid can draw back from them, this makes better everything for the power companies. Now, yes, you're you're creating some of your own power, but they know that very few people are ever going to produce all of their own power. And if nothing else, and this is where people started getting upset about this a while ago, it's not, and it's I'm sorry, it's not going to be ever where this isn't the case. The power companies will charge you just to move your power to somebody else so that you can sell it like a middleman. They'll charge you a service charge for the lines. If you want to stop paying it, you'll have to disconnect from the grid in, in total. And most people will find the redundancy, the backup, the, the, the perks, uh, far more appealing than the total independence. Now, some people would say that I would rather be totally independent. I get that, but this is not about you. This is about the majority. So I see this as a way to distribute power generation and storage, yet remain with an overall centralized power network, which may or may not be the best thing for the individual, but the power companies, seeing the writing on the wall, would much prefer this than everybody having a little box in their backyard, a magic box that makes their own power for them. That would have them shitting their pants. And... If you look at the way this is being used, it's not being used to make so much power that you don't use the grid. It's being used to reduce dependence on the grid. And frankly, there's a lot of the, 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 the people that actually maintain the grid that would be kind of okay with that. They're reaching their kind of pinnacle of what they can do with infrastructure. And they have all of this power of their own, it's bursty power, these wind farms, etc. Texas being the number one producer of wind energy in the country now. Texas might be the number one wind producer in the world. I'm not sure about that, but they might be at this point. If they're not, they probably will be soon. I when, when all the solar farms or the wind farms started getting built both in Texas, they said, okay, the boom's over, and I still see every day that I'm on the highway, turbine blades. That are, you know, <laughs> you look like giant helicopter propellers. Just one blade on a huge truck hauling ass west. Every freaking day I, that I'm, you know, I don't get out as much as I used to, which is kind of makes my case better. That still, on the rare occasions that I get on the highway, it is inevitable on 820 or 30 or I 20 going through Dallas, I will see at least one turbine blade hauling ass west. It's not slowing down. So, The power companies need not just to have centralized storage of their own bursty energy. They'd like to sell it to you into a storage-based system and be able to draw and move power around. And I think it's really a positive thing for our future energy-wise. And I think then, what does that do? That leads to greater potential for plug-in electric vehicles being more and more viable. The more energy we produce from solar, wind, etc., the cleaner an electric vehicle actually becomes. And I, I see us heading towards that. I see more efficiencies coming out of the hybrid, the plug-in hybrids that do have a gas motor and get huge mileage versus the energy. And I see also some real, real growth coming in the market where the car has a little bitty generator, basically, engine that only kicks on when you need it. That's, that's another thing I see growing. But I, I don't think the power companies are scared of this. 
I think there's a reason they put smart meters on every home. And no, it wasn't so they could tell your insurance company that you ate too much peanut butter this week, like the conspiracy theorists thought. It is to deal with this reality of intelligent, decentralized power generation and storage and maintain a centralized grid at the same time, which may be, it may be the best answer. I know everybody wants independence, and so do I, but if we're not going to live in a, you know, anarcho-libertarian society, if we're going to have all these other things, then making best use of what we have, and we also need this kind of weaning off. How do we get there? I mean, this is a hundred-year project. This is like a five-generation project here to get most of the homes and commercial buildings in America generating some and storing their own power. If it takes 50 years to get there, the people that are running Tesla and the people running the electric company today don't give a shit. That's somebody else's you know, issue with how the finances work out down the road. Everybody can make an ass load of money in the meantime. There's no immediate threat here. What there is is extensive opportunity on all sides of the equation. Let's take another one. Oh, real quick. The other big uh, issue with Tesla is Tesla wants to be able to sell you cars directly without setting up a franchise dealership. And there is basically a cartel that is the automotive dealer franchises across the country right now. And the the cost of entry into these things has gotten stupid. I mean, dealerships are selling now at 10 times annual annual uh, revenues. It's just dumb. It doesn't even make sense. And there's a lot of money tied up in dealerships, and the people with that money tied up there very much want to not only defend what they have, but not let anybody else in the game unless they play the game by their rules. It's a big guild. It's it's, a, it's like a big union of, of these, these, these franchise dealers across the country. That's because in the early days, as automobiles were coming out and being sold to the general public, you know, a, a company like Ford or you know Chevy in Detroit didn't want to figure out like how do we get a car to Florida and then to the customer and how do we service the car? So they set up this dealer network to provide all of those services. Well, to be blunt, it's not 1950 anymore. It's not 1950 anymore, and a lot of the challenges that existed back then don't exist. And the automotive dealership hasn't outlived its usefulness. But it's outlived its usefulness to the point where it has to be protected as an entity uh, in a a way that prevents progress. What Tesla wants to be able to do isn't to cut the dealer out just to make more money. What Tesla wants to do is to have complete and total control over its product from the time it leaves the factory and it ends up in the hands of the consumer and in complete and total control of the brand of the product, complete and total control of the service. They want to be the apple of cars. You know, you you can buy an Apple from a third party, but they would prefer to sell it directly to you. And you go to the Apple store and, 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 you know, you deal with Apple employees that know the Apple way. That's what Tesla wants to do. They want a relationship with their customers. And these dealer networks are totally opposed to this, and it's very difficult. But here's the key. <laughs> Again, it's not 1950 anymore. It's not 1950 anymore. All Tesla has to do is get one state to allow direct sales. And then what they'll end up doing is I'll sit here in Texas and point, click, and buy my Tesla in Nevada, let's say. And somebody will just drive the car here, and I'll register it as a Texas vehicle after I take ownership of it. But I've bought it in Nevada. It'll just be like me going to Nevada. And and, and they'll try to get in the way of that, and they'll fight that. But it can only be done for so long. 
It can only be done for so long. Because what you're then saying is that I, I don't have a right to purchase something in another state and have it brought to me here. So there might not be a Tesla store here, but then how do they service it? Well, they set up their store, their storefront, their company store, to be service and maintenance. You can't buy a vehicle from us. Oh, you can use our computer to order one. And, and someone will bring it here and you can come get it. I mean, sooner or later, they're going to get this done. They're already doing some of this in some places, but this is like the old guard clinging to a past paradigm. And that's the big paradigm they're upsetting. It's not so much the electrical company. It's this dealer-centric society that we live in when it comes to automobiles. And this is the reality. The automotive dealers are clamoring about what a disaster this would be. Well, either you're better, either you do all the wonderful things that you say you do, and you have nothing to worry about, or you don't, and you should go the way of the dinosaur if you can't adapt. One or the other, take your pick. Anyway, now let's go to another one. Here's a really interesting question. This comes from Mike in Virginia. He says, can you explain, please explain to me what social justice is and how it's different from plain old regular justice and why the term so social is apparently so necessary to permaculturists as a qualifier for the concept of justice? Background, please understand, I don't mean this is a gotcha question, but I often hear permaculturists, not you or even those in your venue, use the phrase social justice. However, they never seem to define or further explain what this phrase means I have listened to a fair share of right-wing talk radio where the phrase social justice is ridiculed as liberal socialist code for redistribution of wealth. Please cut through the soap, Suba de Mierda de Toro, uh, on both ends. Okay, just for those who don't know that term, it's something I came up with. It is Spanish for bullshit soup. Suba de Mierda de Toro, okay? Uh, on both ends of the political spectrum, and tell me what this means to you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. P.S. Words can't really express the level of inspiration and influence you've exerted on me in a few short months. I've been listening nonstop to your collection of podcasts, so I'll simply say thanks for doing what you do. Well, Mike, thank you for listening. Now, here's, here's my take on social justice. This is one of the places where the right-wing radio assertion that it is social liberal code for the redistribution of other people's stuff is correct. Okay, that's exactly what it is. The problem with the right-wing radio types and, and the corporatists on that, the elite on that side and the marketing they send you to divide you from the liberal is that they also then fail to identify why this propagandist term works so well. What's the underlying problem? So let's look at it this way. Instead of judging it, Let's look at what people mean and why they feel that way. And then we can deconstruct, like, okay, since this is probably not the solution, how do you get to a solution? So what social justice means to, to people that use the term in a positive way is I look out at the world and so many have so much and so many have so little. And it's, it's not right. And, and what the, 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 the libertarian in you Right? Whether you realize that's what it is or not, wants to say right now, if you're opposed to this, is get up off your ass and work and get shit done. Okay, fine. I believe that is the case largely in America. Now, I do believe that a huge segment of our population has had social programs, which these people think is of the social justice, like welfare, etc., used to the point to completely enslave them to the state. Where if they try to do anything, they lose what they have and they never get back to where they were, so therefore they don't do anything. They're like in an antlion nest, okay? 
except for that segment. I lo- and I still think that segment, if you really want it, you can get up off your ass and get it going and get past way past where you were, and you're much better off, and yes, you can. Okay? I believe that. Social justice also takes this, the, the flavor of this, though. If you are, let's say, a black person in this country accused of a crime, you are probably not going to receive the same treatment by the justice system as a white person, even if you have the same basic record in the past. You have to ask yourself, is there any truth to that? I think there's some. I think there's some. I think there's definitely some. Another way to look at it would be two people are accused of a crime. Two people have the same circumstances around that crime, by and large, by the trend. The same criminal background. Let's say none, let's say significant, whatever. It's exactly the same. One person has money, and the other person doesn't. One person has a good job, the other person's never had a good job. Will they be treated the same by the court system? Is one more likely to get parole or probation or what have you? A suspended sentence than the other one? Because, well, Your Honor, my client has a full-time job. He's had no interactions with law enforcement in the past. This was a mistake. This was an error. He deserves the opportunity to make what was wrong right. He's not going anywhere. He has two children. He's a family man. He's been employed by the same company for five years. And the judge says, fine. Two years suspended sentence. Okay, and basically that means like you're gonna you're gonna have a a, a pr- probation officer, you'll be on probation with two years sitting over top of your head, but you're not going to jail or state prison or whatever it is you would go for the crime you committed. You can go home, you go back to work, maybe you're under house arrest, whatever it is, but you're not in the system. You're you're outside. You get to keep your job. You get to stay with your family. You're not gonna go to prison for two years and then get out and try to find a job. And that the other person doesn't have anything except a state-appointed attorney, doesn't have any money, doesn't have a great story, but basically screwed up the same way, is far more likely to end up in the system. So social justice applies to that, too. Now, that's not about the redistribution of property, is it? Okay? So that's another thing that people mean when they say social justice. Social justice types also will say, look, we have cities in this country, the wealthiest nation in the world, where people are living in poverty. Somebody should do something. Some of them get off their ass and go do something for those people. I have respect for them. Many of them simply mean, well, we should take what other people have so that they can have more. That's a lot of what social justice thinking is based on. Then there's the global social justice. You know those commercials with the little kid with the flies crawling around on his face in the refugee camp, and they say for $5 a month you can put milk and food in this this child's body? Okay, if you don't think that there is some level of a, a, a an imbalance of social justice for those people, then you're not human. And if we look at, let's say, the way that the average American lives, and and pretty much luxury that could not even be conceived of in 1955. Really. I mean, people that live in projects in this country have a lifestyle that a hard-working man in 1955 really couldn't get his head around. They have smartphones, they have computers, they have internet access, they have TV sets, they have climate control. Somebody else is paying the bill for all this shit. There's no free lunch, but they have it. 
Okay? How much of that lifestyle is possible because some guy in China makes $2.50 a day? How much of that's possible because there's places in China where if you don't work, they throw you in a, in a basically equivalent to a modern-day gulag? So we're profiting at the expense of those people. How much of the global economy is being run by elites that then take nations like India and put them into such debt that they have to play in the agricultural system the way that we want them to, to repay their debt, and people lose their land? And people go from being subsistence farmers to debt-based farmers, and we only need so many of those. Because a subsistence farmer farms a few acres, and a debt-based farmer can farm a few thousand. So there's an inequity in the way people are treated there. See, if you actually want to get to the core of a true social justice mindset, the only way to do it, you have to remove money from the equation. Because money will not fix the problem. And this is what the people that, that spout off, the, we need social justice, this is their problem. They don't understand. It's a rigged game. And as long as the game is rigged, money doesn't do shit. You can throw money at problems left and right. Now, have you noticed that all the things that the people that are concerned with social justice are concerned about, the more money we've thrown at it, the worse the problem's gotten. So, what the people that are concerned with social justice need to understand is it's really sucky that some guy in Ethiopia is living a shitty life. And it's really shitty that some guy that lives in a suburb of Beijing is living a really shitty life. And that in some way throughout the entire thing, the American corporation or something is tied to the misery. It sucks. But there is no social program that we're going to institute that's going to change that on a meaningful level by taking the money off of a hardworking guy down the street who lives in a few, you know, a, a few zip codes better than you. That, that, but that's where their mind is. And it's because they're programmed to think that way. Right? Um, so how do you then fix the... So now you have to say, is there inequity in the world that is artificial? If it's natural inequity, then there's only so much you can do to fix it. But is there artificial inequity? And as, in other words, are there people that specifically are benefiting by design? And they're the designers of this. And the answer is yes. Well, who are they? They're not you. They're not me. They're not the guy that owns the Chevy dealership that you think I just dumped on. I'm not really dumping on him. He's working the system that there is. Okay? It's, it's not any of those people. It's not the guy that lives in the gated community and plays golf every Saturday out in his own backyard. It's not those people that are doing it. Most of them are highly unaware of it. Most of them have no ability to do anything about it. And a lot of the people that we call rich are some of the most philanthropic people that don't turn that kid with the flies on his face off. They write a check and you bitch about them while they write a check and you don't, Mr. Social Justice. Okay, so that's the reality there. The people that are in control, the oligarchs, the, the, the plutocracy are the ones that have designed this system and they know if they can keep people in a certain amount of poverty here and a certain amount of prosperity there and keep them divided, that they maintain control and they can continue to profit at the expense of everybody involved. 
And at any time any of the people in the system start to poke their head up and say, hey, this isn't right. We need justice for everybody here in all of these different ways, which is what social justice should mean, that they say, hmm, we have, we have a negative nilly in Sector 7G. Right, someone knows that's from. Anyway, we need to do a little, do a little, little bit of uh, corporate lobotomization here. Let's make sure that those people over there starting to figure this out find someone to be pissed at. So let's have them blame these people. Uh, now these people are getting blamed. They're pissed. Let's make sure that they understand it's not our fault. It's the people blaming them. But we're the ones blaming them. They don't know that. They're stupid. That is the system you live in. So. The reason I actually like social justice from a standpoint of permaculture is if we take the politics out, which, to be fair, most of the people using the word in permaculture are all in politically on it, okay? If you take the politics out, permaculture is one of the few things in the world that can actually address this problem. Because the way to fix the problem For the people living in a third world nation that used to be subsistence farmers that are now debt-based, grain-based farmers that are impoverished and starving is not to give them money. It's not to give them money because they'll be dependent on the person giving them the money. And what does that mean? Whoever's giving them money has control of them. No, the way to fix it would be to go there and show them how to use what they have to once again be able to provide for their immediate needs. So that they can have enough power and control in their own environment to begin to notice the things that are wrong in their own backyard so that they can be the solution. So they're not so worried about starving to death tomorrow that they don't have time to worry about the problems that they have. They just want to make sure their kid eats. So who does that? I mean, there's all these like government organizations and charities that go all over and give out bags of rice and shit and occasionally they might put in a garden here or there, but who actually does what I just said? Permaculturists. The relief workers in the permaculture space and the relief workers that take permaculture with them. So the people that are part of things like the Peace Corps, but they're also certified permaculturists that go into places and say, let me show you how to set up your own production system. We don't have any fields anymore. Oh, you don't need fields. You see where all these huts are? You see all that space in between them? Let's grow food there. Let me show you how to do it. We, the soil's not fertile. Let me show you how to make compost. You know, there are people that go out and say things like, you know, you guys could be using honey for sugar, for calories, for, for medicine, for, but we can't afford bees. And, and, and do things like Michael Jordan's done in Africa, like let's go to a junkyard, let's get some refrigerators, we'll make beehives out of those. But we don't have any bees. Oh, let's find a bee. We'll take a little bit of stickum, put a little string on the bee, and we'll follow the bee. When the bee goes to his, wherever he's living... The other bees won't let them inside, or her inside, I should say. We'll see the string. We'll know where the entrance point is. We can figure out where the hive is, and we can extract the hive and put it in here. And now you have honey, and you have wax, and you have pollen, and you have all these other wonderful things, and you spent no money. Permaculturists think this way. If they get the political baggage out of permaculture, and we can go into any place in the world and do this, That would actually be social justice. Social justice cannot be taking from someone else by force. So 99% of the people that, that utter the phrase, that's the first thing they, they, that's the first thing they want to do, whether they know it or not. Well, you know, the rich should pay more taxes. Okay, that's stealing someone else's property through the use of force at the point of a gun. 
And the rich people you're going to tax are never the actual 1% you're so pissed off about. The, you know, so like the Occupy crowd, there's a 1%, the 1%. But the people they want to pay more taxes, you know, paying more taxes aren't the 1%. They're me and you. We're not the 1%. It's not even 1%, guys. It's really a tenth of a percent of the uber elite. They're never going to pay taxes because they create the taxes. They own the legislature. So you can't have social justice at the expense of somebody else. It wouldn't be justice anymore. Just because Paul has less than Peter doesn't mean we can take from Peter to pay Paul. It doesn't work that way. It's not justice at all. To be truly just, each person should be entitled to the results of their efforts and be free to choose how they distribute them. So the, the, the balance is not to take from the productive, but to teach the unproductive how to be productive. Instead of taking my fish and giving it to somebody else and say, well, he's a good fisherman, he'll catch another one. We need to teach the person that doesn't have a fish how to fish. And the world of permaculture and sustainable agriculture in general, unlike the fish in the ocean, you can only take so many. We can actually grow what we want. And we can grow anything from a tree to a cow to a business on this model. And we need to be teaching all of these people in all of these places how to do that. If you're worried about social justice in the inner city of pick your random state, go there and teach the people that are there to fend for themselves. Because if you take what others have and give to those people... You just cemented their ass into the chair they're stuck in. And you've done nothing to help them. That's my take on social justice. And uh, I actually acknowledge the problem that's created the term, but I hate the term because it implies that somehow the person who's worked hard for everything they have is the cause of a person who doesn't have as much. When it's neither of those people that are the cause. And there's no way to keep using a divisive term like social justice without giving the 1% you bitch about a get-out-of-jail-free card unless you can start working on the problem and come from a problem side of the solution. Let's take another one. This next one comes from another Mike. Um, I won't say his last name because I don't know if he wants it online, but this Mike, is, uh, he works in uh, certain layers of the United States Army. I'll leave it at that. Um, He, here's the headline. Video, and this is just, I'm reading his email. Video, armed National Guard troops patrol residential streets in California. And there's a link. It's InfoWars, which is Alex Jones. If you watch, the, and this is Mike's response, if you watch the video, and I've spent more than a day in the Army, you know this is, this is a company in a tactical road march. They've got a freaking company guide on in the front of the formation, rant over Mike. And his subject to this was, oh my effing God, Alex Jones is a piece of shit. I, at this point, have reached that conclusion myself. I have looked into this story, and there is no way, no way, that this story, the way that it's been reported by and lathered up by Alex Jones and his whole contingency, is anything less than complete bullshit. And there's no way that they don't know that it's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. 
This is a National Guard formation. Most of these people are probably clerks, cooks, and freaking, uh, you know, like auto mechanics and supply people. Okay? They are marching through the streets of Ontario, California. Right? And <laughs> this is uh, reported again. Let me. Armed National Guard troops patrol residential streets in California. Okay, you know what a patrol is? Okay, this is not a patrol. These guys are marching. And there's certain guys you call road guards when you do this. And it's like they're, they're practicing traffic control. No, no. What a road guard does is keep the rest of the people from getting run over. They wear reflective bright green vests so that they can show up when they're tactically patrolling to sneak up on. Yeah, okay. A guide on is a flag. That represents the commander of the formation leading. No one does anything like this at all unless you are in complete, let's say, peacetime mode. This would violate every rule of, of being in any kind of situation where you actually felt that you either were engaging or, or, or working with a threat. This is amounts to a shitload of National Guardsmen taking a walk, and since they're National Guardsmen, through their own streets. Through their own. Why aren't they on a base where they belong? Says the man who waves the flag and says, you got to support troops. Oh, God, I don't want to see them, though. Okay, These are the guys that when your house falls on your ass, they come lift the shit off of you and drag you out. They bring in great big pieces of equipment to lift your home off of your stupid ass head. That's who these people are. This is not regular army. This is not even reserves. This is the state guard working in the state they work in. Why the hell would they come walking through the streets? I don't know. Maybe they'd like to attract more people to come be one of them for recruitment. Now, look, you know I don't trust the state at all, okay? I don't. But I also look at things with some level of logic. I was a soldier. I was in the army. And I can tell you at no time that we ever marched the way these people are marching. Were we ever engaged in anything except from going from one place to another? That's it. That's all. And you don't march this way in any type of a real training exercise for anything other than the one thing these guys were doing. Endurance training. This was a long walk for a bunch of people that report the work as soldiers two days a month and two weeks a year. And to, to, to set this up as being, this is linked to Jade Helm, and they're coming to get you. Oh, the guy is a maggot. The guy is, I have tried for years, I have tried to like Alex Jones, because he's brought some really important things to light that have been factual. I've tried. But the guy's gone further and further and further off the deep end. And at least once a week, I get a one new person into this community, completely freaked the hell out that people are coming from FEMA camps to lock them and their family up tomorrow morning. Because that is the fear-mongering bullshit this guy is guilty of. At this point, I can no longer condone anything coming out of the InfoWars camp. And it sickens me to say that. I'm not happy about that. I'm still going to pay attention to what he's saying. Because you'll almost always find... So is the report that these guys walked through this neighborhood accurate? Yeah. What's the conclusion, though? And then like, they, they, there's like a, a, a news outlet that did a story, and they get this one guy, and he's like, they're, they're slowly implementing martial law. You don't slowly implement martial law, moron. That's kind of defeats the purpose. The way martial law is implemented is, it's not here, now it's here. Boom, locked down. 
tired of the monkey's ass. That's how you implement martial law. This is absolutely preposterous. Did anybody would be upset by this? If I were the head of the United States National Guard, right? And now every now the guard has two components, kind of not really components isn't the right word, two aspects to it. The National Guard can be federalized for operations outside of the nation. So there's National Guard troops that have served in Iran. Iran, I'm sorry, Iraq, all right? There's National Guard troops that have served in Afghanistan. But while in the confines of their state, the National Guard, their, their commander-in-chief, instead of the President of the United States, is the governor of the state. Right? So if I were the governor of the state of Texas, I would have our Texas National Guard and our Texas State Guard involved in outreach to the community as, as their training. Because that's what they're supposed to do. And I, I would also be a dick, right? I would totally resist by every shred of power that I had, every effort to send even one Texas guardsman outside of the, the, the borders of Texas, let alone outside of the borders of the country. Now, if the governor of Oklahoma called me up and said, we could really use some help with a tornado we just had, and I think he's genuine, I might, you know, see those assets used that way with cooperation from the commanders. In, this is supposed to be the state's militia. That's what it's supposed to be. Okay? <laughs> so I would have them engaged with these pe with people all the time. Because I would want your, 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 your Tarrant County Sheriff's Department, for instance, to know some of the people they'd be working with if we ever get the big one here, which isn't an earthquake in Texas, it'd be a tornado. If we ever get a mile and a half wide F5, Go through downtown Fort Worth. It's the Texas National Guard that's coming to the rescue. And I want the on-site rescuers to know who these people are, to trust them to work together. And I damn sure would rather have the Texas National Guard and the Texas State Guard, which are two different things, as the responders to a major disaster in Texas than people from New York. Why? They know the local customs, they know the local law, they know the local people, and you don't have shit going on like guns being seized after Katrina in Louisiana by people from New York that thought it was okay, because they're allowed to do that there. It ain't New York City, boy, go home, we'll take care of our own. That's how I feel about this. So, again, it's not that I trust the state of Texas. I, I just, I don't trust them as little as I trust the federal government. Because the people, a person in his own home, generally behaves better than a person in a stranger's home if he doesn't like the stranger. There's nothing here. This is a guard troop on a training walk. They're armed. I guarantee you not a single one of them was carrying a single round of ammunition. How do I know? I've been there. I've been there. Up oh, and you can see the empty magazine wells. But anyway, anyway, this is the last straw for me. I, I no longer see a credible shred to the whole InfoWars empire, and it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. It is a guy, in my opinion, that on a quest to be simply bigger and bigger and bigger and more extravagant, they wrote so many checks with his mouth that have never been able to be hashed with his ass. He has to keep your eye on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Because if anybody ever went back, and took all the times this clown said something was going to happen and it never did, the, 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 the evidence of him being a complete charlatan is overwhelming. The only reason that I've held off this long and finally just throwing the freaking baby out with the bathwater with this guy is because the, 
very fact that people are awakened to the fact that not everything's okay has created a lot of people, and that's what I can say for Alex Jones. There are a lot of people awake to reality today because of him. Unfortunately, I think we have more people awake to false reality because of him. Because if it sells, he'll tell you it's true. If it puts you in a state of fear, he'll tell you it's true. If it keeps you listening, he'll tell you it's true. How's that different from me? I tell you shit every day that pisses you off and makes you think about never listening to me again. Because I'm more interested in telling you the truth as I see it and being honest about it than I am trying to sensationalize things. But the guy's a piece of shit. Mike's dead on. Let's go to something else. Next one's a little bit of follow-up from um, last week. I did kind of a back-to-basics show on basic preparedness, and I talked about one way to deal with human waste during a long-term you know, grid-down scenario. You can't flush the toilets for whatever reason. Is the blue stuff that goes in chemical toilets, some really thick, heavy-duty uh, contractor's bags, five-gallon bucket, and a toilet seat. And uh, basically... Follow the words of uh, uh, the the band that they call the Offspring, and uh, keep them separated. And what I mean by that is urine and, and, and poo should not really go together in, a, in an effectively managed system like this. And there's no reason to actually bag up your pee that it can be used to water your plants as a nitrogen fertilizer diluted 15 to 1 with water. Or make a straw pile and pee there. And yes, ladies, you can do it too. And uh, everything everything's good to go. And uh, that's just, just you know, a simpler way to deal with the urine equation. And that your solid waste goes in this bucket with the blue stuff. What I said in the comments section was really the best way to do this is with a bunch of sawdust in a bucket. And, uh, you know, for each time you, you move a, make a movement, you put in three handfuls of the sawdust chips. And then when that bucket's full, you just put a lid on it and set it in the back of the yard somewhere for a year. And it's perfectly good compost at that point. And that the reason I said to go with the blue stuff is because when I'm doing a basic show for people that are like, ew, that's gross. Well, I don't want you living with your poo because that's grosser. So I'll give you something a little bit more entry level uh, as a solution. And it does work and it is easy. And, you, you know, you don't necessarily know where to go get enough sawdust right now to do this. And this is more of a solution that you just implement into your life. And if there's a disaster coming, you might not be able to go out and get, you know, two giant bags of sawdust. But anybody can go down to Walmart or an RV store and buy the blue stuff and some garbage bags. So it's an easier entry point. But the, the, the better solution is a sawdust toilet, basically, and continue to keep them separated. Well, it's funny because I got an email from, um, from Aneto, uh, who said, uh, I'm sorry, wait, that's not the right person. It's Amy. Um, that here's what the initial email said. I'm listening to your show and I just heard you talking about not being able to flush your toilet for a month. We did just that. About 200 people in our city, including us, had their pipes frozen this winter. They were frozen for about a month. It wasn't really so bad. It was kind of fun getting used to some of the prepping, getting to use some of the prepping supplies and using the skills I've developed around preparedness. But to those, those have a lot to do with your show. Thanks for that. 
By the way, every year, instead of a silly resolution, I pick something I want to learn, and I do what I can to build my skills in that area. This year, it's energy and solar power, and last week, I finished re-listening to your shows with Stephen Harris. Thank you for doing those shows. They're pretty great. I just bought his Sunshine of Dollars book, too. Can't wait to get into that. Thanks for all you do. Your show is pretty fabulous. Well, well thanks a lot, Amy. Uh, but I responded back. I just want to know, what was your solution to the no-toilet issue, and what was your neighbor's? She said... We just did the compost toilet thing with a bucket, toilet seat, and some shavings. I started a new compost pile after a year or so. I'm planning to put it out on my fruit trees. What I did wasn't legal, but since it was uh, the city's pipes that froze, I decided that when they got their pipes working, they could tell me what to do with the waste. Other people melted snow in their bathtubs and used that to flush. We started with that, but it used up too much water. Washing and doing dishes were more important. So there's the actual implementation of that other solution. Um, again, sawdust, poo, and you can either just do it straight in a bucket if you're going to let it compost, or you can put it in a garbage bag if you're going to want to get rid of it. But it really does keep the, uh, the stink down. If you want to go to kind of another level, there's something called feline pine, and it's a pine wood shaving sawdust Uh, cat litter product. And if you've ever owned a cat, and we do, um, as bad as human waste smell is, cats worse. So that has a lot of like the pine aroma and aromatic oils and stuff that helps keep the stink down. And that, that would work. And it's something you could buy at a store. Um, there's a lot of ways to get your hands on either wood shavings or sawdust, but it's not something usually you can just go down to the corner store and pick up. And I, I'm a big believer in having those types of solutions, but I'm also a big believer in for people that are just so far behind the eight ball, they need to get to some level of preparedness, always providing the what I call the Amazon solution, like something you can buy at Amazon or Walmart that will solve your problem, at least cursory solve your problem until you can get a better sustainable life put together uh, based around that so that you don't end up you know, melting snow so that you can flush your poop because that is a pretty – intensive waste of you know resources and that assumes your heat's still working really good by the way for that snow to melt in your bathtub just saying let's take another one uh next i have kind of a, a brief update about a prior two prior guests actually and uh just an opportunity to tell you that something that we we had on here that said can be done actually can be done So John Dowie was recently on talking about building a business based around ducks and duck eggs. And we had a really great interview. But a few months ago, I brought a guy on named Luke Callahan that said you can make, you know, $1,000 a week, $2,000 a week with a microgreens business if you'll hustle hard enough and build up a book of business. And he has a great book that's more like a course, like a blueprint that tells you how to set up and build a microgreens business. So John had mentioned that he was dabbling into that and starting to figure out how to do it and what have you. He had bought Luke's book, and I just got this email yesterday, that's Friday, from, from John, about 4 o'clock in, in the morning, so he must be up early. I guess it's 5 there. It's still awful early on a Friday. Anyway, um, hi, Jack. FYI, we did $300 in sales for microgreens in the first two weeks with just three days of marketing and sampling. Also, we're selling eggs to restaurants and yuppity land for $8 a dozen now. Apparently, their off-season supplier was at $0.80 cents an egg. Looking to blow it up with the greens in the next two weeks. We're in four restaurants and a store now. We have meetings with three more restaurants early next week. We are selling for $3 an ounce and killing the competition and produce companies. They are selling for $4.50 to $5 an ounce with shitty cross-country product. Figure after we get them hooked, we go up in price a little bit. 
Oh. So, you know, when I say if you want a business, you can build a business, I'm just saying if you want to build, build a business, you can build a business. Microgreens. So $150 bucks a week, you ain't going to retire on that, but this is a business. The, 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 the microgreen side of this business for John, this is like 30 days old. 30 days old, and you got you got this momentum going forward. So, and I, I do want to give you a little bit of advice about business and and understanding. Like, you get excited about little things, and you get depressed about little things, and how quick that can swing. And and like, there's if I could give you one thing to get you through your business startup is to to balance those out and chill, but just keep hustling and working hard. So. We, we got all these new ducks, and by the way, we had duck moving day last night, and all the ducks are on the other side, and they're in their new digs and all, except for the mothers that are laying hens. And again, I hope to get a Duck Chronicle biz, uh, video out for you this week. So we had a little lag. Uh, Dorothy has some problems with Craigslist. The ad didn't go up for a couple weeks, so our, our sales slowed a little bit. Uh, I just reposted an ad um, uh, Friday uh, for our eggs, and she comes to me and says, maybe we should drop the price of six fifty a dozen. I'm like, well, why would we do such a thing? And she's like, because I have this big inventory and they're they're not gone yet. I'm like, well, how many eggs do you have? She's like, I got about nine dozen right now. It's like, you're spoiled. And then she says, well, I actually have nine dozen sold for next week already, but you know, by then we'll have another nine dozen. I said, that's an inventory, that's not a problem. So by this morning, she's out counting eggs, worried that she she she's not going to have enough. So that's from Friday to Monday. Okay, and that's perfectly normal. I'm not picking on my wife. That is, that is for a person that's never run a business, how the emotional roller coaster goes. Person that's run a business before can just look at something and go, too small to worry about. We got to focus on making sure we're developing the best product and putting it into the right hands consistently. That's all we have to do right now. We're not even trying to market. We can turn that marketing up anytime we want to. And then you just turn the nozzle on a little tiny bit, and you've gone from, we have too many, to we don't have enough, and we have plenty. We're good. We're great. In fact, if anybody local wants some eggs, we are producing some of the best eggs we've ever produced right now. Absolutely gorgeous eggs. So you can do it with ducks. You can do it with microgreens. You can do it with a – I'm going to have Curtis Stone on soon. Curtis Stone is the guy that helped Luke get into his business. I'm going to have Curtis on to talk about urban farming. This guy's farming a third of an acre. Doesn't even own most of the land. Making a hundred grand a year. Urban farming. Without land. Right? He does own a house now. He calls it owning a mortgage. I get what he's saying. But that's very recent. And it was doing this that enabled him to, to eventually become a homeowner. He's doing it in Ontario. You can do it in Ontario. You can do it. You know what, John, you think like you have to live in a foodie town or whatever. John lives in New Hampshire. It's not like he's in like, you know, like freaking Austin or San Diego or LA or San Francisco or something like that with like, you know, super foodies everywhere. It's just because he wanted it and because he's following a system and the system works and he's willing to build a book of business. So, John, thanks for checking in with us. And I'd like to hear back from you about 30 days from now. I bet you, I bet you within 30 to 60 days that John's doing at least $500 a week in product. Anybody want to take that action? Let me know. We'll put some beer on it. 
Next up, just a quick one, is you notice I just said the Ducks have had duck moving day. Well, obviously that means the Barnyard Mafia, the six geese that made up the Barnyard Mafia, are gone. Well, they're not gone, they're now meat product. Um, I was going to take them down to this processor, and there's a language barrier there, and I know they do chickens. I'm almost certain they do ducks. I could not get a comp, I wasn't confident that these people did geese. Geese are a pain in the ass to, to do, especially if they're not, like if you buy goslings, raise them to 11 weeks, and kill them as a meat bird, then that's one thing. But when you have birds that are a couple years old and you're plucking them, it's just a pain in the ass. I didn't want to do it. I didn't have time to do it. I'm planting grapevines right now. I've got like another 30 grapevines to get in the, in the, in the ground in the next couple days. So we did a workshop about a week ago, and a couple was there, and they said, well, we process birds. I'm like, well, if you come process the geese, I'll give you three of them. We'll take three apiece. So they did, and they were here all day, and they weren't really even done, and they took some of them home to finish. But I have, you know, three, and, and they're good to go. And I have all that meat now, and now they're gone. But the crux of the story is sometimes you've been helped, and you don't even know it. And sometimes you've been helped by the first responders that we take for granted. That happened on Saturday evening for me. And I would have never known if this couple hadn't come here to take care of the geese. So after they leave, I get a text message, and it says, Big Oak Trees Down on Nine Mile Road. See, we had a major storm come through. Um, we didn't have tornadoes, we don't think anyway, no confirmed. Serious straight line winds, serious microbursts. And so we were all out because they were bloody and, and dirty and tired and sweaty. And they were like, they didn't want to come in the house because they were wet. They got caught in some of the rain toward the end of cleaning up and all. And we're standing in the garage, and I just start to look at the way the weather's going. And I'm like, yeah, let's go in the house. But we don't want to like, don't worry about it coming in the house. So they come in the house. The storm passes through. It was a, like a 55-mile-an-hour moving storm. Um, and they were like, it was like kind of like these two cells coming through. And they like, we watched it on the radar. They literally merged together as they came through Azel. And it was nasty wind. But everything on my property ended up fine. But again, they leave after everything cleans up, and, and I texted them back and said, where? Because I didn't even see the text. I was tired. I took a shower. I drank a beer. I went to bed. And um, he said, oh, it's probably cleaned up by this morning. They already had sheriff's deputies out there. And uh, they were directing people around while they were clearing the roads. So that's an example where a lot of people that live here on Sunday morning got up and drove down my road and just cruised right on through. And because it wasn't like huge amounts of trees where it's all stacked up on the side of the road, it was just cleaned up and gone, that those first responders were there. They did their job. Most of them received not even a thank you. Most people don't even know they were there. So I know I can be hard on law enforcement and basically all bureaucrats in the state because there's a lot wrong that goes on too. But there's a lot right, and we need to remember that. And you need to remember that sometimes just because you don't see the help not just from an employee of the state or not just from law enforcement or first responder, but a lot of times from people you'll never know and never run into. There's a lot of people doing a lot of good for a lot of other people that never receive a thank you and aren't even looking for one. And that's just one example. I wanted to share that with you guys today. And uh, now for the final story today, and we'll have a little bit of fun with this, even though it's kind of a horrible thing that happened to some people, but horrible people that apparently deserved it. Um, we're going to have a segment instead of Jack was wrong. Jack was right. So um, that's kind of some cool music to be right to, huh? Uh, anyway, 
Uh, I don't usually do this when I'm right about something because usually it's like, damn it, I was right again. This sucks. This was a, an example of being right about something and not only being right about it, being right about it um, from like seven years ago. So I'm on my own forum right now, the TSP forum, and I'm reading a post that is in um, the Armory Self-Defense and EDC Martial Arts Unarmed Self-Defense Hand-to-Hand Combat Physical Fitness is where it ended up. Um, and it's titled, Best Home Defense Weapon If No Gun. And here's what I said, and I had a question back then. Again, this is from 2009, April 17th, 2009. So the show wasn't even a year old yet. Okay, help me out, folks. A person asked me, what's the best home defense weapon if you can't own a gun? I mentioned it in this thread on today, and, and this thread on today's show. Two answers to me are taser or katana, samurai sword, my view on each. Taser, effective and less than lethal, which are both advantages. Big disadvantages is not effective on multiple invaders. Katana, highly deadly, very fast and proven. Disadvantages, requires training, close range only. I won't make a big, big case here for either, and I don't need you to either just yet. For just now, suggest any weapon that can be used and a bit of why it's good for home defense. Once this thread runs a while, I will compile all the suggestions. We can run a poll. We should learn something interesting with things on this one. Um, when I did this, both on the air and in the forum, it started a shitstorm. And some of the shitstorm was people telling me I was crazy, a sword won't work for this, it's too long, whatever. And by the way, there's there's basically two samurai swords. There's a long one and the short one. And it's the wazasashi, I think is how you say it, but the shorter one that would seem to be more ideal for in-home use. But to me, even a full-size samurai sword is not that long. And what I said on the air about this in defense of, of my statements was, It's a little bit of a loaded question that I kind of already knew the answer to, a little bit of a jack trap that I was laying there. Um, at the time, I was doing a lot of training with Valerie Asanoff, who's a former member of the KGB, and the guy that taught me what I know about Sistema, and Neil, Neil Franklin, my business partner, who I met Val through. And we had done some trainings where we had taken foam, like wooden bokens covered in foam so you don't beat the shit out of somebody with them, and taken a person and given them like five to ten minutes of training. And put them in a house and gave somebody an airsoft gun, both people wearing goggles, and said, go shoot him. If he tries to shoot you, cut the shit out of him. And it was about 90% of the time the guy with the sword would have just totally murdered the dude with the gun. And, and, and the guy with the gun never was able to hit the guy. There were times when they'd say, you know, I hit him. No, you didn't hit him. There's, there's the, 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 I watched the pellet bounce off the wall over there. You didn't hit him. You know, and the guy didn't respond. You, know, you did not get hit. Or, you know, you, the guy, like, nicked him across the, the arm. He goes, well, I nicked him. Well, you nicked his outer tricep. And, and by now, your whole face would have been laid open. Like, you're bruised from this. We maybe put some more foam. Like, we knew. And then we started teaching them some real subtle things. Like, you don't have to, like, we think of this, like, big slash from a samurai sword. There's ways to be, I'm talking about not some cheap replica crap here. I'm talking about a high-quality, sharpened blade Just little rick flicks of the wrist will open a person up like you wouldn't believe. If you And it does require training, but not that much. So I, again, I had the shitstorm. I had some people, not so much in this thread, but in comments after I said it on the air, you must be anti-gun. This is just some way to try to make it like you don't need a gun. I'm like, no, the question was from somebody that legitimately could not own a gun. Just couldn't do it. Um, partly because they did not live in this country. 
right? So it was just an attempt to figure out how, how would you deal with this? And my remained contention was you give a guy a sword and a little bit of knowledge and you put him in a building in a close quarter situation and none of this, you know, 21 foot rule with a knife crap, just legitimate combat. This guy with a sword is extremely dangerous. And if not better armed than the guy with a gun, certainly represents a significant threat and has just as good a chance to come out ahead. In fact, our testing would indicate better. So I got this email <laughs> this weekend, and this is Renato. Um, Dear Jack, did you see that a 49-year-old man, man used a katana as a defense home defense weapon? He had no training and overcame three bad guys, two of them with firearms. I remember one of your first shows you mentioned a sword as a home defense weapon, and people made fun of your comments. I guess the burglars did not find it funny at all. You changed my life. I'm taking Jeff's course because of you. That's Jeff Lawton. I'm an MSB member. Thanks for all you do. Renato in Brazil. See, Renato wouldn't follow my voting advice because he can't because he's in Brazil. Anyway, let me uh, let me read this to you. It's on Daily Mail. Hacked to pieces with a samurai sword. The burglars who got a very unpleasant surprise when their victim fought back. Warning, graphic content. A man defended his home from four armed burglars by hacking pieces out of them with a samurai sword. Diaz cost the 49 slash the faces, arms, and necks of the raiders who fled the property in a getaway car while dripping with blood. The burglary took place last night in Cerro Norte neighborhood in Cordoba in central Argentina, and all of the men are currently in intensive care. Mr. Costa, 49, and his wife, Christina, 48, were asleep when the men who were armed with two pistols, four people, two pistols, broke in at 3.30 a.m. Police Commissioner Mariano Zarte said, In a moment when the attackers were not paying attention, the house owner took a samurai sword and defended himself, injuring the attackers and making them run away. In the panic, the thieves only managed to steal the equivalent of 238 pounds, that's about 500 bucks, and fled in a Peugeot 206 car, which was parked outside. Bleeding heavily, the driver lost control of the vehicle and hit a stationary car, forcing all four to go to the hospital for emergency treatment. Police initially arrested two men and one woman, but another man who hid, hid was forced to come back to the hospital the next day due to serious sword injuries. The Costa family have moved in with relatives as they fear they might be targeted for revenge attacks. Prosecutor Orlina Gutierrez said, We could not yet question the victim of the burglary as he's still in a state of shock. He's in shock. If you see the pictures, and this is graphic, don't look at this if you don't want to see blood and gore. Um, I think it actually could be worse, but it's bad. And you definitely see the one guy has just a hell of a forearm injury where when this guy was hitting him with a sword, he probably stuck his arm up. And it might have saved him from getting his throat cut, but you don't block a samurai sword with your forearm. Just saying. So, once again, when stating that a samurai sword would be an effective indoor close quarters weapon for defense against even an armed assailant with a gun, Jack was right. <laughs> And I'll tell you, friends, how right was I? It wasn't one guy with a gun. It was two guys with guns and two other individuals who have uh, received, quite literally, 
the sword of justice. Now, just as I said at the time, I'm sticking to something like my 1911 for this use. But if for some reason you can't arm yourself with a with a gun for indoor self-defense, knowing where it is and knowing how to use it, you could do worse than a samurai sword. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The revolution is you. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.